Hello and welcome to this series three, episode two of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello, I hope that you're having a good week. I don't know when you're listening to this, it could be Monday, it could be Friday, it could be in two years time, but whatever time it is, I hope that you're doing okay. I'm currently in my little office space. It's Sunday morning at 9am. I'm just about to force myself out of the house to do some exercise because I know it will make me happier as the day goes on if I've already done it. And yeah, that's sort of where I'm at. Work is starting to pick up a bit more for me at the moment, which is lovely. So uh, that feels very, very exciting. Um, Also, a few people have got in touch recently to ask about where they can see some of my comedy. There's stuff on YouTube. Um, I mean, there's stuff from a long, long time ago, which I'm not sure is that funny anymore. But there's also more recent stuff like Live at the Apollo or uh, different TV shows that I've done. But the BBC have recently put up uh, my special that I did about three years ago now. So it's um, so it's a little while ago, but um, I still really like it. It's their series live from the BBC. So if you haven't seen my stand-up and you fancy having a look, um, it's about half an hour show and maybe you'll enjoy it. Maybe I'll give you some laughs during uh, whatever you're doing this week. It's going to be on there for another couple of months. So if you want to look at it, go and have a look at that. Um, As ever, we've received loads and loads of messages this week, which is lovely. A lot of them have been very, very moving, and I really appreciate that. As always, I'm really just delighted with how much this podcast means to people, and thank you. Uh, Thank you for, um, I don't know, encouraging me to make it, and um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you want to get in touch, you always can. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I'm also on Twitter, Susie Ruffle, and on Instagram, Susie Ruffle Comedy. And um, if you want to rate and review, that's really helpful. It helps more people find the podcast, which means I can keep making it. So if you want to do that, please do. And you can leave a little review. I have read all of those reviews and um, they're, they're really lovely. So thank you very much if you've done that. Right, as always... We're going to do some uh, listener emails. Uh, loads of you have got in touch to say how much you love this part of the show. So, uh, yeah, I'm so pleased that, uh, that, I, can, that I can do that. Um, it's, it's not really down to me. I'm just doing the reading out loud. And I'll be honest with you, Michael, um, my brilliant producer, has to do a lot of editing because of the dyslexia. Uh, but it's, um, it's really a thanks to the people that write in rather than me. Right. Here we go. Dear Susie, Spotify recommended your podcast to me about six weeks ago and I loved it so much. I binged both seasons so it would be up to date in time for series three. It's been amazing to hear so many varied stories both from guests and listeners and I would love to add my own to the mix. I'm originally from Australia but moved across to the world of Spain 18 months ago. It was only meant to be an eight month trip but you know, pandemic. So here I am 10,000 miles from home and trying to make the best of my situation. It's actually not that bad. I miss my family and friends, of course, but I've been miserable for many years. And most of that seems to have disappeared since I moved. It's also given me distance I need to figure out who I am and who I want to be. And part of that has been acknowledging my sexuality and coming to understand that I'm pansexual. I haven't told my family yet, but I also don't feel any need to do so. I'm very fortunate that there's no doubt in my mind that none of my family or friends will care in the slightest. The first time I said anything about it aloud was a couple of weeks ago. I was having lunch with a couple of friends and they were chatting about their partners and their plans for the future. I haven't dated in years. I quite enjoy the single life and not having to compromise at the moment. And one friend turned to me and said, I know it doesn't really interest you right now, but I'm curious to see what kind of man you end up with. I looked at my friend and replied, to be honest, 
I don't know that it will be a man. My friend immediately corrected herself. Okay, I'm curious to see what kind of man or woman you end up with. I took a moment to recommend this podcast to them before we carried on with the conversation. The second time I said anything was a few days later, talking to the same two friends. We were talking about podcasts we had been listening to and one mentioned this one saying, oh yeah, I wanted to ask you, but I didn't want to put you on the spot at the time. You said that you found Susie Ruffles podcast very helpful to you at the moment. What did you mean? I explained that I realized that my gender was irrelevant to me when it comes to who I'm attracted to and that I found this podcast very helpful to understanding and accepting that part of myself. My friends accepted my response and again the conversation moved on. These two experiences meant more to me than I think either of those women understand. Or maybe they do and I'm luckier than I know. I felt heard and validated. They had acknowledged and accepted my sexuality without fuss and in doing so had shown that I was right to believe there was nothing to fear from my loved ones. Thank you for taking the time to read this and thank you for creating a safe space for sharing. Now you haven't said whether you want me to share your name and because you're quite early on in your coming out journey, I'm not going to share it. But thank you so much for getting in touch. Your friends sound brilliant. Maybe they're listening right now. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for being such great mates. Um, I know that we actually have loads and loads of allies um, that get in touch with the show. One got in touch this week to say how um, they listen to the podcast when they're out on walks and how it's um, and that they, they they have some social anxiety and that, that they really enjoy listening to the podcast. And they said it was from an an ally. And so um, I know that loads and loads of you allies listen, and I I love that you care, and I think you're all bloody brilliant. Right, thank you so much for that email. Let's have another one. Hi, Susie. I didn't think I would actually ever send you an email, but your last episode with Rose and Rosie has inspired me too. Honestly, Rose and Rosie fully changed my life. I would have been about 14 when I found them on YouTube at the start of their YouTube career. I knew I was gay, but I was in complete denial. Even convincing myself that my feelings were due to subliminal messages in pop music, as they were all teenage boys singing about liking girls. The first couple of videos I saw of Rose and Rosie, it was not entirely clear to a young Catholic educated me that they were in fact gay. I'm just gonna uh, pop in here. I think Rose is gay, but Rosie identifies as bisexual. Um, I kept thinking about how close they were and how much I wish me and my best friends were that close. Then about the third or fourth video, they kiss and all I could think was, oh shit, I knew and I couldn't keep running from myself anymore. Less than a year later, I was out at school. Unfortunately, however, this was only the very beginning of me finding a way to accept myself. Despite officially identifying as an atheist, I was still plagued by Catholic guilt. I heard other girls in single-sex schools refer to lesbians as creeps and that they shouldn't be in an all-girl environment. Teachers were frequently minorly homophobic, saying, I have gay friends, but... And I internalised that. I hated myself and I was convinced I was a creep and that people wouldn't want to be my friend anymore. That people would think that I was just trying to get with them. I cringed every time I saw someone who took stereotypically lesbian. Spoiler alert, I'm one of those people now. I internalised my homophobia. However, didn't stop the queerness coming out on its own. I always dressed androgynously, but once I cut my hair and got piercings, my mum looked at me and said, you look like a dyke. This was another oh shit moment. This was the first of numerous occasions where my family members referred to me by this slur, forcing me out of the closet in pure desperation. It was interesting. My mum told her friends and family without my permission, I was horrified and exposed. Coming out wasn't the liberating experience I'd hoped for. The slurs became worse and I was told I was asking for the harassment I received on the street for my appearance. I felt like a circus animal, something to be used for show. Look how progressive we are, we have a gay child, only to be hidden away when it didn't fit the societal ideas of normal. I went to uni in a very liberal city, but even then I felt unable to join anything openly queer because people assumed because of my appearance, I was comfortable in my identity, which couldn't have been further from the truth. I continued to feel isolated and ashamed. 
It was only over lockdown, seven years after coming out of school, that I finally decided it's time to deal with this. People like you and your guests are so important. When I saw you on TV, I felt almost a relief. I didn't cringe as I normally would. I actually laughed. It was like fitting in with the stereotypes wasn't anything to be ashamed of anymore. I always felt embarrassed and ashamed that people could look at me, the way I dress, the way I walk and talk immediately know that I'm gay. I thought that people would think that I was making a show of it. Now I've realized I don't really care. I have a long way to go. Dating in lockdown has been near impossible and it's been so frustrating that now I'm finally ready to let go of the shame and actually express my sexuality that we're not allowed to meet people. I've never been to a gay club despite knowing that I'm a lesbian for 10 years. Admittedly, only four of those I've actually been old enough to go. But even my straight friends have been. I have used lockdown to consume every bit of queer media I can. This time, openly recommending books, podcasts and films I like instead of watching Orange is the New Black secretly when my parents were out of the house. So I guess I just want to thank you and all your guests. Without them and you, I know I would probably still feel isolated and ashamed. So thank you so much. And again, you've not said whether I could share your name, so I don't know whether I can, but I know your name and I'm really chuffed that the podcast has helped you with that. And it's really nice that I get to read all of these lovely things that people say. But let's be honest, part of it's me asking the questions, but um, the big part of it is people agreeing to come on the podcast often people that I've never met um, often people that I have dm'd on twitter or tried to get in touch with via a friend of a friend of a friend or going to someone's PR firm and they've been kind enough to give me their time and that's exactly what happened with today's episode I was quite stunned when I realized that Mara Wilson followed me um, and delighted and I knew that she was bisexual and I asked her if she'd come on the podcast and she was kind enough to take time to chat to let's be honest a complete stranger um and I just loved this conversation I thought she was absolutely lovely to chat to she's smart she's brilliant I had such a lovely time chatting to her and I really hope that you enjoy listening to the conversation as ever please get in touch with me I mentioned before but the email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com or you can find me on the socials But for now, let's go to that conversation with the brilliant Mara Wilson. Listeners, I am beyond excited to welcome today's guest to the show. She was a constant fixture in my childhood and quite likely yours too. Mara Wilson starred in Miracle on 34th Street, Mrs Doubtfire and of course Matilda amongst many others. A talented, thoughtful and engaging actress, growing up I wanted to be her. Her talent doesn't stop with acting, she's also a graduate of NYU, she writes plays, fiction, non-fiction and in normal times performs storytelling nights across New York. I have just finished her book Where Am I Now? True Stories of Girlhood and Accidental Fame, which I highly recommend. It is fascinating. I am delighted to welcome her to the show today. Hello, Mara. Thank you so much for having me. And my gosh, what a wonderful intro. Well, I I mean, I was absolutely delighted when I saw that you followed me on Twitter. I was like, well, listen, I'm (laughs) sliding into her DMs. I'm sorry that I'm doing this, but thank you so much for coming on the show. It's um, it's been a real thrill reading your book. I've sort of been transported to being a child again when you were talking about filming and stuff and yeah it's it's such a great read thank you it's just brilliant how are you i'm doing all right uh all things considered i've had kind of a a whirlwind week uh it's, it's best of times worst of times here I, I just had an article published in the new york times that i'm really proud of and uh, that was a day after we had to put one of my beloved cats down so, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it was bittersweet, but like a lot of my life is bittersweetness, I think. And um, 
I, I think I'm kind of used to good things happening when bad things happen and bad things happening when good things happen. My, that's that's kind of been the narrative that I've found in my life. So Does that mean that if something good happens, you're like, uh, what's around the corner? Well, it would be like that anyway, just because I'm a neurotic person. So okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm a neurotic, anxious person. So I'm always suspicious. I'm like, this won't last. What's what's coming next? But that's just, yeah, yeah that's just, that's just who I am, I think. Have you always been like that? Yeah, I was, I mean, I was, I was an anxious child. Uh, I was also a happy child. I've seen like home videos of me and there's one at like, I think one of my brother's playing some kind of sport. Uh, we weren't the most athletic family, so I don't think that lasted very long. But, uh, but you know, maybe they were playing baseball or, or something like that. And there's a video of me, and I think I'm like probably about two years old, and I'm just going up to everybody going, hi, 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 and like going up to other kids and like waving in their faces and like asking if they want to play, and then wandering over to my dad, and my dad plays with me for a little while, and then I go off, and I'm just like, hi, everybody, hi. I was, I was a very... I alternated between like being a very like extroverted, happy child and uh, and being like a very, very anxious child. There was kind of, you know, when I when I wasn't like happy and smiley, I was constantly worried about something. And yeah, and I think that that's kind of <laughs> that's uh, I, I was always going to be that way. I mean, I do think that like fame probably exacerbated some things, but uh, sure. but I was always going to be a worrywart. You know, I was I was yeah. always going to be one. I mean, I'm definitely an anxious person and a worrier as well. And I think it makes yeah. such sense for someone that I mean, I put myself on stage and people are like, but so you, you can't be an anxious person. I'm like, oh, no, I need to do this so that I can tell you about how anxious I am. And it will be funny. But it's like, what's the word? Uh, counterphobia, which is where you're you're drawn to the thing that scares you. Oh, I've not you heard know? that, but I love it. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. It's a little bit like that. And I've, I've been telling people for years, I'm like, look, my, my anxiety doesn't mean that I withdraw. My, my anxiety makes me more likely to overshare yes. and be performative. The, there's a musical theater song called Shy. You know, which is about how this this woman is shy and she makes up for it by being completely obnoxious. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's uh, that's me. My social anxiety takes the form of telling people that I love them and they're my best friend or or being, you know, really obnoxious, you know, really, really soon and, and coming off. And, and telling people like, you know, the craziest stories I have and being like, can you handle me? And I, I feel like I've tamped <laughs> that down in recent years, but like my teen years and my, and my early 20s, I think we're just all about that. We're all about just like me saying weird, you know, wild things and me getting up on stage and doing all kinds of, you know, ridiculous stuff. And that's kind of how it manifested for me. <laughs> and I think that's the way it manifests for a lot of comedians as well. I mean, I'm not a comedian. I've, I've written comedy and I've performed at many, many comedy shows, but I'm not like officially a comedian. Would you, would you like to do stuff? Stand up? I mean, I've kind of done it a little bit, but it's so intense. My God, it's so intense and it's it's scary. And I, I have so many friends who did it and and they would, you know, have me on their show and I would tell funny stories. But I was just like, this is so, you know, this is so intense. And so and it's such a commitment it is and a it's commitment. so much work. Yeah. And there's so much criticism. So I was just like, I was like, I, I like this, but I don't think I'm good enough at this, you know, uh, I, I do love the, the like interplay with an audience, but I have had like, I have had a lot of shows where, uh, like I remember I was doing a show for, I went to a show for Reductress and I got there and Anna Dresden, who's one of my favorite people in the world was there. Anna Dresden's now, uh, I believe one of the head writers for SNL. She's, she's absolutely fantastic. One of the funniest people in the world. And she came up to me and she was like, she was like, I think somebody canceled and we don't have enough people to go on. Can you go on? And I was like, uh, she's like, do you have any like stories in your back pocket? You could tell. I was like, yeah, I do. And she's like, okay, please go up on stage. 
and that just happened. And uh, and so I did, and it was great, great audience. Yeah, I look back on that now, and I'm like, because now my life, I, I moved back to LA where I'm from, and now my life, obviously life now is particularly subdued. Uh, but I'm just like, oh yeah, I had, I did that. <laughs> I had yeah. times in my life where I would just kind of get up on stage and, you know, and, and do these things. And, you know, it's funny because with all my fears, um, there was a time I think when I had stage fright, there was like probably, I would say like around puberty, I had like really bad stage fright. And I remember when I was little, cause I was such a musical theater nerd. I always wanted to do musicals, but I was afraid of like singing in front of people, dancing in front of people. Uh, I, I should have been afraid of dancing in front of people because I'm not a good dancer, but, uh, but yeah, but other than that, like I've always been comfortable with a crowd. There's very few mm -hmm. things that I'm, I'm comfortable with in my life, but a crowd is one of them. So is it strange? And I'm sure you've been asked these questions a lot, so do forgive me, but is it strange that you played a part in so many people's childhoods? I don't think I really realized that I did <laughs> until, until like... Don't tell me like this moment, like I've not, this, this isn't no, a shock. <laughs> probably like 25, I was like, oh yeah. I feel like I kind of had imposter syndrome for, a, for most of my life. And the thing about making movies, especially when you're a child, is they take so long to make. And a couple months in the life of a child is a lifetime because, you know, you're developing so fast. So six months between finishing the movie and the movie coming out with like a little bit of like some reshoots and dubbing and things like that, mm -hmm. that, that feels almost like summer camp reunions, you know, or, or looking through like, you know, holiday photos, like just kind of looking through these things and, uh, and sort of reconnecting with some of your friends. And it really, there is such a disconnect there that you kind of forget that you're working towards something, that you're working towards a big project. And when it comes out, there's such a disconnect because you, you don't even remember who you were, you know? And I remember like seeing, I remember like seeing an actor uh, accept an award for a part he'd played two or three years earlier and he'd, he'd done a voiceover job and, uh, and his voice had completely changed by the time that he'd accepted the award. Yeah. And so I never really felt the feeling of like satisfaction you get from doing a live show, which is why I think that in my, I mean, I guess what we would call middle school years here, I don't know what they are for you, like 11 to 13, preteen mm -hmm. years uh, and, and high school years, I started doing more, more live performances. I started doing improv and choir and theater. And that I, I felt like, oh, wow, there's an immediate payoff. There's an immediate connection between me and the audience. It felt very mm -hmm. real as opposed to film, which felt like you make something and then you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait. <laughs> it's like growing a garden or something like that, you know? <laughs> and and yeah. me, I mean, I was, I was a little, you know, ADHD kid, you know, just dreamy, lost in my own mind, I'd probably moved on to five different things by then. So, and also I felt a lot of times like people liked Matilda, but they didn't like me. And that was fine because I also loved Matilda. Like, I love that part of your book. Yes. Well, she felt like an older sister. When you, when you write to her, it's great. Yeah. One of my favorite college professors, Marlene said, I think you should write a letter to Matilda. And, uh, and that was one of the hardest parts of the book to write because I had so many feelings that I couldn't quite parse. And I, I went through so many different versions of it with my editor and some other chapters just kind of sprang out of my head, fully formed like Athena. But this one, this one was, was difficult and it was a slog and I had to work really hard with my editor on it. Cause she was like, well, do you think this is what you're meaning to say? Is this what you're meaning to say? And, uh, and it was hard, but I think it was the most rewarding. And that's usually people's favorite chapter, you know, or, or not chapter, but essay. That's usually mm -hmm. one of people's favorites because yeah, because, because she really did mean something to me and it felt kind of like she was this archetype that I was embodying or she was this, it felt a little bit like, I mean, I also have three older brothers. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you have older siblings. I've got an older brother. 
but it, sometimes it feels like you're being compared to them in good mm -hmm. ways or bad ways usually and uh, with with me it was always good ways because my brothers were geniuses <laughs> no and they and they still are i love them they're they're wonderful wonderful men they're they're my built-in best friends but uh my, my brothers and sister really are my best friends but they uh but you know it could be frustrating to be like oh you're john's sister you're joel's sister you're danny's sister you know as opposed to you know oh you're mara and so that's kind of what it felt like oh you're matilda and i was like i'm not really matilda you guys i'm not really and uh, I think people were expecting me to be as smart as her, as cool as her, as as brave as her, and uh, and I knew I wasn't those things. So I felt like I couldn't really accept the compliment. Right, that's so interesting. Yeah, because when you talk about middle school and sort of joining, now I know you don't call them glee clubs, but to, to yeah. a British audience, that's sort of what they're like. It was a glee right? club. Yeah. yeah, it was a glee club. Yeah. What, what was that like? Like what were other children like about the fact that you had been this sort of character or that you'd been in all these movies or did kids just ignore it because I feel like if I had met you I would have been like I think this is really cool let's be friends <laughs> well, <laughs> but I don't know if that would have been annoying <laughs> well that was the thing there were people that wanted to there were people I felt like that met me and they would want to be my friend and then they would get to know me and they would be like oh you're boring <laughs> you know or or they would be like oh you're not as interesting as I thought you were you're not as cool you don't you don't wear cool clothes you don't have a lot of money you're you're just like you don't move things with your eyes <laughs> yeah I was I was a regular I was a regular like lower middle class kid uh the acting thing wasn't as weird because I, I grew up in a town where a lot of big television studios are out here. We have Warner Brothers, we have Disney, we have Nickelodeon Studios, and so many different studios are where I live. And because of that, like, people would come to school and they would have, you know, things around their license plate that said part of the magic Walt Disney Studios or stickers on their car. Right. And it was just somebody's dad worked for Disney. And, you know, one of my best friends, her dad worked for Disney Channel, and he made, like, documentaries and things like that for the Disney Channel. And my dad worked as an engineer for a television station. So film and TV were just part of our life, and, and there's this whole kind of working class and, like, creative class that isn't Hollywood. Right. You know, it isn't really like that. There are people who are producers but aren't, you know, millionaires. And there are people who do all the engineering and tech work, like my dad. And there's people who do, you know, creative work, but it's a very lower level, like my friend's dad. And there's all those kinds of things. And so so there were also a lot of other child actors around. Right. And every, I would say, February or March, we would get new students in our class that came out for pilot season. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, so... All of like like a lot of my closest friends had had been in commercials and had been in movies and were doing modeling and sometimes it felt like a little bit like they were trying to use me to further their careers. Like I had a friend who just kind of stopped talking to me for a while because she thought I wasn't cool, and then she would talk to me again when she was like, "Hey, I wrote to your agent, but they never got uh, back to me. Could you talk to them?" Yeah, I totally had that. Well, I totally had that. So I also had, gross. and it's funny because she wrote me a couple months ago to be like, you know, "Hey, how are you doing?" And like we had this really nice chat, and then she was like, "Anyway, I'm promoting a book right now," and I'm like, "Of course." <laughs> Twenty oh, years so later, nothing's changed. Yeah, so so I think, and a lot of times people would think, you know, they would they would kind of assume they were like, oh well, you're famous, you're a spoiled brat, you're you're this, you're that. So they would kind of sometimes they would be mean to me because of it. I know there were definitely you know girls at my school who would get bullied for being in movies, and you know, and some of it was jealousy, but I think a lot of it was the kind of jealousy, or maybe envy is the better word. I'm not sure, but uh, where they didn't want to be us, but they wanted to be they wanted to have what we had. Mm. 
You know, like yeah. everybody, like I was an awkward teenager and nobody looked at me and was like, I want to be her. But a lot of people looked at me and were like, I want to, I want to be in the parts that she's, you know, I want to play the parts that she's playing. I want to do this. Also, I got teased a lot because I was in children's movies, which was deliberate on my parents' part. But, you know, being in children's movies was not as cool as, uh, as being in, you know, grown up movies or, or yeah. movies that like, you know, comedy movies that kids really liked. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of weird. It was multi-layered and, and, and my experience was probably very different because I was growing up in a place where it was somewhat normalized. Whereas, let me tell you, where I grew up in Portsmouth, there was was a rumor once that Arnold Schwarzenegger used a gym in the main street in Southsea. And honestly, the whole of school were like, have you heard that Arnold Schwarzenegger's in Portsmouth? It it was huge. It was huge news. And that gives you an idea of how exciting it would have been to have a movie star at my school. Um, so you talk in the book about being diagnosed with OCD. Yeah. I mean, I guess all of the stuff that you mentioned right at the top about being sort of an anxious child, mm-hmm. you know, did that just become, I guess, overwhelming? Like you, you needed something to put a name to, I guess. I definitely did. I know some people think that labeling things doesn't help, but for me it has. Mm. And, and there's times in my life where I can't accurately label something and that's frustrating to me. But I think that's just the way that my mind and my personality work. Yeah, I I knew something was wrong with me. A lot of people worry that something is wrong with them. I knew something was wrong with me. And that's one of the the sort of cruelties of OCD is that you know something is wrong. You know that what you're doing isn't normal. The things you're thinking aren't normal. And you feel like you have to hide it from people. But I, I always knew. I was like, this this can't be normal. And I knew it wasn't normal also because, you know, my mom would try to talk me out of it. She would try to get me to stop doing it. And she couldn't, you know, you, you, you can't you can't outreason mm. anxiety. And you can't outreason neurosis. So I was struggling for a couple of years. And it kind of came and went. And I think that... I think that also a lot of parents don't want to believe that their kids are sick. And my brothers had been, you know, some of my brothers had been anxious kids too, and they'd worried a little bit, and then they'd kind of grown out of it. And that has, that is actually like a developmental thing. I think kids around like age eight, they start to worry about like what is real and what isn't mm-hmm. and what what they can affect, what change they can affect. And that's when you get a lot of magical thinking. And that's actually, I mean, that's, that's probably why a lot of girls, you know, still say to me these days, <laughs> like, I thought that I could move things with my mind like Matilda. Yeah. And that's a, that's like a normal developmental thing at that age is, is, what can and can't I do? What in, what in movies is real? What isn't? And so I, I think that I kind of, I thought about that too, but I, I, I thought about it on like a big scale. Like if I, if I don't, you know, say these things right, then, you know, something terrible will happen. If I don't, uh, if I don't clean this off just right, then something terrible will happen. If I don't wash my hands every day, I'll get, you know, wash my hands multiple times, you know, every day after school, then I'll get sick. You know, if I don't take three showers a day, it's going to be, you know, that that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it, uh, it It is about maintaining control. And I do think that I think that probably a lot of it was uh, due to my mother's illness mm-hmm. because my mother was, uh, I had always been anxious. I'd always had symptoms, but it didn't really become full-blown OCD, I think, until my mother was ill with cancer. Mm-hmm. And, and after that, I think, uh, I, I also think that it's possible that you know, film could have exacerbated these things too, because it made me into a perfectionist, like even more of a perfectionist than I already was, because it's all about getting it right, you know, and, and you're rewarded for getting things right. So you don't want to make a mistake. Right. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Thank you. I've thought about it a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, but it really does. It really does. Yeah. And do you think that the control element of the OCD or getting things right 
Does that also come down to the fact that you were sort of in the spotlight all of a sudden as a child and you had no control over that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, I, I talked to one of my studio teachers this weekend, Lori, who I talk about in my book a lot, mm-hmm. who, who helped me figure out my OCD diagnosis. And she said that we, we talked a lot about control and anxiety. And she says, well, I think she, she says, I think you remember that when we were filming in Toronto, what we did every day is we always made sure that you made a decision, that you made a choice. And that was very true. She was like, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to the mall? Do you want to go to the park? Do you want to go ice skating? Do you want to go to a movie? You know, do you want to just read a book? Do you want to write a story? She would make sure that I, were, I was doing things every single day that gave me control over my life. Mm-hmm. And I was so incredibly happy. I think that was, that was one of the, the happiest times I've ever had on a film set. Was, and I think that was because, yeah, they, they respected me. They were like, what do you mm-hmm. want to watch? What do you want to do? What do you want to, you know, what, what fun thing can we do? Or not even fun, but just like normal thing can we do? Like what restaurant do you want to go to? And they always gave me the chance to make a decision. And I did feel like I was in control. And I remember coming back to, to California. And I mean, I loved being in California again and seeing my family again, but going back to school, I think I felt very, very sad because, uh, I, I didn't, I did feel like I'd, I'd sort of lost that control. And, but I, I do also think that actually, I, I do also think that being on a set for me was good because it gave me structure. Mm-hmm. So, so I do think that that was good, but I also think, especially at that age, at that age, you want to have some control of your life because everything is changing so much. And there's so much that you don't understand about yourself. And, and that was, I think, when I started getting really burned out on acting. And you can tell, like, if you look at any of my performances from age, you know, 11, 12, I'm so checked out. I'm so <laughs> not into it. Whereas, whereas, you know, younger ones, I'm like very much into it and I'm very enthusiastic. But at that age, I'm just like, I don't even care anymore. I want to be with my friends the way that, you know, all teenagers, all teenagers are. So, right? yeah. yeah. So so that was, I think, the thing for me was that they they, you know, tried to give me some measure of control over my life. Mm. And and that was good. Yeah, I mean, everyone needs some autonomy, even if you're a little kid, you need to have some. Definitely. So one thing that I found like totally baffling when I was sort of doing the research and rewatching stuff and sort of uh, watching like interviews and stuff with you when you were really little and that stuff when you're growing Mm -hmm. up. I was amazed by how many interviewers would say things like, so do you have a boyfriend? Oh God, like, I hated like, that. What is yeah. that. That must've been so embarrassing. And like, I don't know awkward. why they did that. And I mean, what were they expecting me to say? You know, it, I remember one time I actually, I, I think like one of my brothers, uh, had like, they, they, he graduated from middle school. So he was probably about 13 and they had a big party and there were a bunch of boys there. And I, you know, I went up on the dance floor and I was dancing with everybody and people started teasing me saying, Samara, you have a bunch of boyfriends now, huh? And I didn't know what that meant. So I was just kind of like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then I went on an audition a couple months later and somebody said to me, the woman came out and she said, so do you girls have boyfriends? And I said, yes, I have so many boyfriends. <laughs> because, you know, I just thought they were they were boys like on the dance floor I was dancing with. They were, yeah. And and she was, I was like, I have a million boyfriends. And she was like, okay. And I'm like, well, first of all, why were you doing, what were you doing asking us that question? And second of all, what, there's no good answer for that. You know, there's, there's no good way to answer that question that wouldn't, you know, involve more ridicule. And I, I just felt like it was really, I, I thought it was condescending and I, I wasn't interested in boys, you know, for a, a long time. And and I, I hated that they asked that, and it made me feel like a joke. 
Mm. Like, it made me feel like a joke. And if I had said, yes, I do, what would they have said? Yeah, yeah. And I, I watched the um, the Framing Britney documentary this week and noticed yeah. the, you know, and it's obviously already been spoken about in the press about the similarities of stuff that you've said, but I was kind of amazed looking back on that stuff. You're like, what the fuck is wrong with these old dudes asking, like, this very young girl? Yeah. If she's got a boyfriend, like what? Exactly. I don't know what they're expecting to get from it. And and no matter what they're expecting to get from it, it's a joke at the kid's expense. Mm-hmm. And, totally. and I just don't think that it's, yeah, I think it's really annoying. And it's it's designed to make them, you know, embarrassed and uncomfortable. And and to do that in public, I think, is, is just really gross. I, I remember being asked who I thought the sexiest man at the Golden Globes was. How old were you? Seven. Oh, my yeah. God. Six, seven. And I actually said to the woman, I said, look, I'm not like that. Like, I'm not interested in boys. I'm not like that. I'm not precocious in that way. You know, that, that's basically said. I just remember saying, look, I'm not like that. Good for you. That was just something that seemed so far away and scary to me. And, and I, I had no interest in it. The only thing that can come out of that is everyone laughing at someone. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's an adult it's ridiculous. picking on a child. It is. It really is. And I was, yeah, and I can't, I was, I was asked that probably hundreds of times. Yeah. Probably hundreds of times in my, in my childhood. Yeah. I can imagine. That, yeah. It's just weird. It's just so strange. Yeah. So when you were sort of growing up, was it was it sort of in middle school that you thought, oh, maybe I'm not only attracted to boys or maybe I'm not entirely straight? Or when was it that you sort of realized that you didn't quite fit into that box? I, I mean, I think that I, I realized it, I would say probably in middle school, like 11 or 12, I, I started noticing that I had stronger than normal feelings for friends, or they would say and do something and it would make me feel a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But I always had excuses for it. And I I realized too that like, I had a lot of close friends and and girlfriends and some of whom are, you know, famous actors now and some of whom are also not straight. Uh, Speaking of not straight, here comes my cat. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That was perfect uh, timing. Theo, Theo, come on, Theo. Um, Theo, Theo is, we, Theo is actually a gay cat. We have, we have realized that Theo is very gay. He's, he's very into other male cats and, uh, very into, um, shows about plucky detectives, uh, with, about plucky female detectives. And he loves Gillian Anderson. And, uh, uh I mean, we, we've seen him, sure. you know, we've seen him humping male cats. And so with all of these things, we're like, I'm like, this is my beautiful gay son. That's fine. And listen, everyone on the show <laughs> totally supports him. And, yes. Uh, and just good <laughs> of for course. him. Good for him. Um, good for him. Uh, but we have, uh, I, I think I started noticing that, but I was really heavily in denial. And I think that women who loved women when I was growing up were seen as either a joke or like they wanted to get attention. Mm-hmm. And I was basically told that I was both of those things anyway, because former child stars are, are jokes and people always accuse me of wanting attention, which like, yeah, of course I wanted attention. Most human beings want some form of attention. I don't get why that's like the worst thing that someone can have. The mm-hmm. worst thing that someone can be is an attention seeker. Like, yeah, of course. But, but that's what I always heard. And I also thought to myself, I had this, this rationale where I was like, I'm already so many things. I already have a mental illness. I already have this, this past. I already had, you know, my mother died and like my extended family was really messed up. And I was like, there's too much going on in my life. I can't be, you know, not straight too. (laughs) And, uh, but I mean, like I was never really that into boys. I had crushes on boys sometimes. Uh, 
And a lot of the boys I had crushes on were very, very feminine. And um, I would have, like, friendships with girls that would end terribly and I would be completely heartbroken. And I I had so many girls that I would, like, think about so much. And so Rhea Perlman had this show called Pearl that was a sitcom about a woman going back to school. And Mm -hmm. she cast me as a a nine-year-old genius uh, who was her tutor. And I I played a lot of those kinds of roles. I I was very good at appearing smarter than I am. So... Uh, no, book. You're pretty smart. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But I'm not. I'm not a genius. I, I played a lot of child geniuses. But she, uh, she had me on that show, and there was this one actress there, who. I was absolutely in love with. She was so sweet and kind, and her character was supposed to hate my character. And she she said, she's like, I know that I joke about, you know, hating you, but I want you to know that I really like you. I think you're very cool. And one day she couldn't come to work because she had food poisoning or something, and I was heartbroken. I wanted to see her so badly because she was just so smart and funny and beautiful and kind and just radiated intelligence and, and elegance and was gorgeous. And... I, I was just like, I couldn't stop thinking about her. And I didn't realize till years later, I was like, oh, she was one of my first big crushes. Mm. So uh, that's a shout out to Lucy Liu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> if, if, if you're nine years old and you're a girl who likes other girls and you meet Lucy Liu, I mean, come on now. I mean, I come had on. a very formative moment watching Ali McBeal when Nell and Lucy Liu kissed. I mean, I mean nice of course. Portia de Rossi oh and God. Lucy Liu kissed. I mean, I distinctly remember going to school next day and me and the one other girl who later came out as well yeah. being like, did you watch Ali McBeal last night? Yeah, me too. Of it was course. good, wasn't it? It was good. Yeah, yeah, of it was course. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. And like, not mentioning it, but both knowing exactly what the other were thinking. Yeah, no, it was, it was a, it was definitely a thing. And people would joke, I mean, people would joke about, you know, about like me being gay or, or me being bi, like all the time. And, and certain friends of mine, like I remember I had a friend of mine who I had absolutely nothing in common with. And we kind of became friends out of like mutual fascination and curiosity. But she like, she was like very sexual at a very young age, just kind of, kind of precocious. And I remember being attracted to her, I think, because she had what, what seemed like this like command of her own sexuality and me being and I was kind of like whoa like I think that I was attracted to that because it was interesting to me and the idea of a woman being you know sexy and a girl being sexy was was really fascinating to me um now I'm like oh god I hope she was okay (laughs) Uh, because she got into some situations where I was just where I'm just like whoa you should you know be careful yeah and I remember feeling like feeling like I I was attracted to her in middle school and not really knowing what to do about that and in high school, I, I would insist that I was straight over and over again, even though I kept falling in love with girls and they kept breaking my heart. And yeah. uh, as friends, they would break my heart. Yeah, on, on the show, we've referred to that a number of times as lovely, intense female friendships. Uh, yeah, and <laughs> and a lot of the time, and a lot of the time, they weren't that lovely. They were they were cruel. There were there were girls who were mean to me, and they they gave me you know, and and I was in love with them, and I wanted them. And it is, it's like the. Like, like, there's that that thing about like, um, like, like the, one of the reasons that our minds like love gambling is because uh, we we get rejected, and we we win some and we lose some, and because of that we keep going back and back and back because uh, we want to we won some and then we lost some, and so there's this thing in our mind that tricks, and that's kind of what I felt like with them, and they would always tell me about their boyfriends, and I would like live vicariously through them, you know, and I would be like, oh my god, he loves you so much, he he got to stroke your hair, you know, and and I had that, and and I had some really heartbreaking ones where like I remember, 
you know, hanging out with with this one girl, and she, we like went out to. You guys don't have Denny's over there. Denny's no, we is. Don't. Denny's is where it, Denny's is like the most American thing. It's like where you end up on late nights, and uh, it, it's where teenagers go. Are they like twenty four hour? I think they are. If, or if they're not twenty four hours, they're. Late. They're close to it. Like, you know that, like, people are going to, like, like crazy stuff's going to happen there. And it's where all the theater kids go. And it's where everybody goes to gossip and, and to, you know, it's late night. It's a place you end up. But I remember we were at Denny's and uh, we had stayed out too late. And it was my birthday and we'd stayed out way too late. And uh, I think my dad called, like, the one cell phone that we had. <laughs> and he was like, uh, you need to come home right now. You're in such big trouble. And I was a goody two-shoes. So I went outside to cry. And then my friend came out, and uh, she gave me a hug. And, and I just blurted out, I love you. And I felt her kind of stiffen as she was giving me the hug. And she said, oh, I love you, too. And I remember thinking to myself, no, that's not what I meant. Mm. But... I couldn't say that because then I would have to think about what I actually did mean. And I didn't want to think about that. And I remember just feeling heartbroken. And, and so, and I remember after that, she kind of pushed me away and we Mm -hmm. stopped talking so much. And she started saying like kind of sarcastic things to me and mean things to me. And I I think that was, that was what did it. I think that it was too much for her. Mm. And I, I I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure she was straight and, uh, I'm pretty sure she was straight, but just the idea of that, you know, that's a that's a hard thing to put on anybody, you know, when they're 15. And and so, like, I can understand why she pulled away. But but yeah, I I definitely I had a lot of those. Mm. And then I had some. Yeah. And then every now and then I would have a really close female friends and people would be like, so you're into her. Right. And I would be like, no. And at my I went to art school for two years and I, I loved it there. And everybody was coming out, and I was like, I can't do this. I'm not ready yet. Even though there were definitely girls there that I was into, that I was attracted to. It was a very safe space for them to come out, but I still I still just wasn't ready. And I think a lot about if, if I hadn't been a child actor, would I have come out earlier? Because that, that was about to be my next question, because yeah. from my perspective, I, I've always been out as a stand-up. Like, as soon as yeah. I started doing TV stuff, I was I was already, like, I, there was no going back in. Um, the hair was cut. The shirts were bought. Um, everybody knew, you know, like, everybody right. suspected, you know, and... But and, is there a uh, fear that, like, TMZ are going to run a story about it? Or, so, like, is that... Yeah. Or, like, the well, Empire or some sort of... It was... There were so many jokes about lesbians growing up, and, and right. when I was coming of age, it was either, it was either lesbians are are weirdos who wear sensible shoes and listen to the Indigo Girls, which, I mean, I, I totally do. <laughs> I love, look, you can't take, you t- can't take my comfortable cowboy boots away from me, okay? And I've been, I've seen the Indigo Girls, I've, and I've seen the Indigo Girls twice, and I cried both times. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, actually, I remember hearing an Indigo Girls song when I was young and being like, wow, this really resonates with me. I think I, like, I heard an acapella cover of it or something, because that was the musical nerd that I was. And then I found out who did it, and I was like, oh, no, I can't like this. And I, I immediately shied away from anything that I thought was like even remotely gay. I was afraid to even like the Spice Girls. So, so, and there was also the the not like other girls streak in me. I think where I was like, I can't like anything feminine. And now I'm like, fuck it. I love cats. I love tea. I love dresses. I love you know. I love all kinds of pretty things. I like sparkly shit. I like, you know. I, I like girl things. You know. I like things that we consider girl things. I love the color pink. And and most of these things are, are stupid. They're stupidly gendered anyway. But um, 
I think that there was there was also it's because I internalized so many of these messages and there was so much pressure and there was this kind of homophobia, you know, that was that was around us in in America and the idea of like girls who kiss girls, it was always for attention. You mm -hmm. know, I remember being so infuriated when Katy Perry's I Kissed a Girl came out. Um, we all know Jill Sabule's I Kissed a Girl is the superior one. Uh, but uh, I remember being so infuriated by that and not being able to express why I felt so infuriated. But it was because I was like, you're playing into this this thing that people think, you know, is is what we are and, and what we do. And and I mean, I, I do think all the time, like I, I probably would have come out younger you know, and uh, and I also think like my orientation probably like might be a little bit different. I think that, you know, because I think that a lot of times now I I when I do date men, it's because I have experience, you know, dating men. And uh, and that's what I did. And part of me is like, if things had gone a little differently. Would I have only been dating women and feminine people? Like mm. it's, it's entirely possible. You know, I, I think that obviously a lot of this is hardwired from birth. I mean, I remember being in love with like the girls I saw on Barney and Friends and Sesame Street. So, you know, that was that was in me at a young age. But but I also feel like some of it, I, I think a lot. I'm like, how could my you know, my life could have been different, maybe. But I don't I don't like lament it because I feel like I, I had so many wonderful experiences and like I wouldn't have been able to have that wonderful experience with Lucy Liu <laughs> when I was it. nine, you know, <laughs> if, if that hadn't happened. And I wouldn't have been able to, you know, work with, you know, M. Beth as Miss Honey, who who is, you know, an icon for the ages, as we all know. Absolutely. And and do you have to did you have to think a lot about sort of coming out publicly? I mean, I thought a lot about it, but when it came down to it, I didn't come out in I, I didn't come out in a way that I wanted to, but that was because as I've discussed, like a lot of times in my life, a lot of our, our sort of best of times, worst of times, like the year Matilda came out was also the year my mother died. And, uh, and I think that, um, the, the year that my book came out and the year that I came out was a year that was sort of fraught with grief and loss for me. It was 20 year anniversary of my mother's death. And it was, uh, my grandmother died. My best friend from college's husband died. Uh, our family dog died even that year. It was, it was just full of loss and exhaustion. And I remember I, I wanted to say, I wanted to allude to the fact that I was, you know, a member of the community when the Orlando mass shooting happened. And then I got pushed back by people saying like, uh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be talking about this. This isn't you, this isn't your place. It's not your place to be grieving. You know, I talked about like going to gay clubs when I was 18 and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, this isn't the place that, you know, this isn't the place for you. You shouldn't have been there. It wasn't your space. And I felt that pushback and it was kind of like, it was kind of like in a sitcom when people say, you know, they're not going to do something and then somebody challenges them on it and they're like, oh yeah, well, and so I did that and it wasn't the healthiest thing. And I'm, I'm really sad that I came out that way because I, I would have liked it to have just been kind of a non-issue like, oh, Mara Wilson's dating a woman didn't know that about her. And I feel like most people kind of suspected anyway. But you can't, I mean, it's so difficult to... Yeah, you know, if someone's it, telling you this isn't for you, it's so hard not to go. Yeah, it, it is. is. Yeah. It is exactly, exactly. And and I still feel bad for that that girl that I talked to because I, I imagine people are probably ganged up on her for that. But I was accused of doing things for attention. There was one gay male writer who wrote this thing about how I uh, like I was doing this for like to be a brand, and <sighs> uh, and uh, and he now does uh, sex advice columns. And like, I'm like, come on, dude, I, I've thought about like writing in and being like, 
um, I'm bisexual, but but people think that I'm doing it for attention. What do you think? <laughs> and seeing, you know, what people thought. I, I also said, I also played it really safe. I said I was a Kinsey too, which is not true. Uh, I'm, I'm way more attracted to women and, you know, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely much more, you know, but I, that, I was kind of dipping my toes in the water and I wasn't sure what kind of response I was going to get. And I didn't have a lot of great responses to it initially, but, um, and I hadn't even told my parents yet at the time they, oh, they, wow. so I had to have a conversation with that about them. And, uh, and I hadn't told my siblings either. Well, I told some of my siblings and, um, and, uh, None of them were surprised. None of them were surprised. I'd come out to them and they were all just kind of like, yeah, we know. Like one of my brothers, I, I went out to Mexico. We went out to a Mexican restaurant and he's like, so are you dating any guys? And I was like, no. And I don't know if I'm going to, at least not for a while. I think I might want to be dating women. And he didn't even look up from his enchilada. <laughs> he just said, okay, so, so you're going to be dating women now? And I was like, yeah, maybe. I don't know if it's going to be only women, but yeah maybe and and he was just like okay <laughs> and uh and my parents my parents were like we kind of knew you know like everybody but but it was really really hard it was a really hard time for me and and i i really wish that i hadn't come out in that way at that time i wish i'd been a little bit more thoughtful about it but it was it was it was not a rational decision it was an emotional impulsive one and i wish it hadn't been but uh but but i'm glad every day that i did i'm, I'm so happy i'm so happy and, and it is just like a huge weight off my shoulders. You know, I also didn't expect it to be on like E! News and, and, you know, trending on Facebook. And yeah, I, I really didn't, ex <laughs> didn't expect that to happen. I didn't think people would really care that much, but, um, it mattered to people, but I get messages every day. Like I got a message yesterday from somebody saying you, you helped my friend come out. And uh, I love that, that I absolutely love. And it's, uh, it's, I don't know. It, it really means it, it really means so much to me that I've been able to do that. And so I, I don't I don't ever regret doing it, really. I, I, I do wish that I had done it a different way, but I don't ever regret coming out. Yeah. And that's great to hear that there was like a weight released from your shoulders. Um, I'm going to ask you the final uh, question of the podcast. I feel like I've thanked you a hundred times for doing it, but I'm going to thank you again. <laughs> um, the final question I always ask every guest on the show is um, if you could go back in time or pick up like a dream phone and mm. call like a version of yourselves. But some some guests are like, I don't want to call myself in the past because it might change what's happened now and I'm happy now. <laughs> so people can do it different ways. So either it can be a, a version of yourself. And I was thinking maybe, you know, when you spoke about sort of the girl in high school and you were saying like about her boyfriend being able to stroke her hair and you were sort of looking yeah. at her or like hugging the girl outside the Denny's and then yeah. feeling her tense up and you thinking, oh God, no. Um, yeah. if, you, if you could call that girl or call a girl that's going through a similar thing today um, and give her a bit of advice or a bit of encouragement, what would you say? I would say that she's not going to lose love from it. I think that I was very fortunate in that way in that my family, even the more conservative ones, the, the family members that I, I talk to, there's extended relatives that, you know, I don't talk to and they don't talk to me and we're just fine with it. But, uh, but uh, I, I would say that she is afraid of losing love when she actually will gain so much more love by doing this. And she will gain so much more love and understanding from people she doesn't know but also friends and a community and romantic love and, you know, platonic love with friends who understand. And uh, her her family will probably 
love her even more because they will understand her now and they'll be able to talk to her about things and she'll be able to watch you know tv shows with friends and you know with you know she'll be able to watch tv shows with her brother and like both be like Alison Bree's hot right <laughs> and <laughs> you know and and people will understand why you you always wanted to talk about queen latifah and you know <laughs> and people will understand people will understand even if people don't now you know or they do only only like in theory you know they they will they will understand and they will love you and People are always going to say that you want attention, and you do, and that's not a terrible thing. And people are always going to say, you know, embarrassing things about about these things, but, you know, about like, oh, lesbians are like this, and bisexual women are like this. But you know what? Embrace it. Like, first of all, they're not, they're not terrible things, and second of all, like, you like a lot of, even if they were embarrassing or silly, you like a lot of embarrassing and silly things already, you know, who cares? So, so, so I would, yeah, I would just say to her that, that you are, you are blocking yourself from receiving love. You know, you're, you're afraid you're going to lose love, but really you, you are, you are blocking yourself off from receiving so much more love and so much more openness and so much happiness. And, and so that's something to keep in mind is that, that you are going to have so much more love and happiness in your life when you, when you open this up and when you, when you open up and to the truth about yourself. That's perfect. That is the perfect way to end the podcast. Thank you. I loved that. Um, you could probably tell actually that I was uh, quite excitable, but yeah, that was a real that was a real thrill for me, and I hope it was for you too. Um, I hope that you have a great week. I'll be back again next week. Oh, I gotta let you know, we have recorded some great episodes recently. Um, I've been receiving lots of emails about suggestions. I've reached out to loads of people from the world of sports, and currently. I still haven't managed to book one, but I will, I promise you, I will continue to ask people to come on the show. Maybe we'll have one before the end of the series. And all of the people that have people have suggested or people from different sections of the community, please know that I am reaching out and I am um, trying to get those interviews in, but I can only interview people that are willing to be interviewed. But I will continue to try so that this podcast can feel inclusive and that you can feel like you're hearing from all kinds of people and the kind of people that you want to hear from. But that's all from me this week. Have a great week and I'll see you next week. Well, I won't see you. You'll, you'll hear me. You'll hear me next week. Okay, bye then. Bye.